He didn't really see them coming. One moment, a lad on rollerblades knocking into him. Another pushing and jostling. Watch where you're going, old man. And then the blow to his head. And he was down on the pavement. The kicks, when would they stop? He felt them rummage in his jacket, take his wallet, his watch. And then they were gone, shouting, yelling down the wintry street. He lay hunched in the gutter, moaning softly, unable to get up. His stick kicked out of reach. The social worker on her way home after a long day at the office passed by a few moments later. Not another drunk, she said, as she stepped over him. I really must get to Sainsbury's. Another few minutes went by. The old man tried to get up, but fell back again, cutting his face on the curb. It was at this point that the minister from the church opposite unlocked the door of his e for his evening service. He caught sight of the hunched figure in the gathering gloom. Addicts, he muttered. Getting worse here every day. The police really should do something. And he turned on his heels and went indoors to finish getting ready before the first of his flock arrived. The old man could feel the cold seeping into his bones, the voices in the street getting fainter when he felt a firm hand on his shoulders. He curled into a tighter ball, expecting a further kicking. Have they come back for more? Are you okay? said a man's voice in fractured English. A bearded face swam into view. He's really hurt, said the man. Bakri, run, call an ambulance. I will stay here. The stranger took off his threadbare coat and placed it over the old man. Don't worry, he said, I won't go. And as the man lay there, he could see, he could hear the stranger praying over him in his own language. The only words he recognized was Allah. Later that night, after many hours in casualty, the old man was discharged, and waiting for him at the hospital door was the father, Viraj, and his 11-year-old son, asylum seekers from Sudan. We stayed to make sure you get home, they said, as they guided him gently into a taxi. And when they got back to the old man's flat, they helped him indoors, offering to make a cup of tea. In the kitchen, it was plain. There was almost nothing to eat, and the old guy was simply too weary to do anything for himself. So Viraj left his son to sit with him and went down to the corner eight till late where he used the last of his food vouchers, all they had for the next three days, on some simple English food for the old man. It's funny, isn't it, how we put people into boxes, prejudices of our own making, asylum seekers, illegal immigrants, sponges, neighbors, our neighbors. And Jesus commands us to love them 
as you love yourself? Do I? And if not, why not? Thank you to the worship team. Good morning. It's great to see you. Thank you for being here this morning with us. This section goes much better with people around. It's a bit weird when it's just me on my own. We're going to dive straight in. If you've got Bibles with you or tablets or phones, if you want to turn to um, the book of Luke, that would be wonderful. Dr. Luke, as I call him. It's not called Dr. Luke, it's just called Luke. But, you know, he worked hard for that PhD, so it only seems fair to mention it. Um, And we're in chapter 10, so if you could find Luke chapter 10 for us. And I will put the words up as well if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, As Steve mentioned already, this is the second instalment of our teaching series, Stories Old and New. And this morning we're going to look at our very first story. These are real stories. These are stories that Jesus himself told. They are works of fiction but they're told with a specific purpose in mind. And last week, Steve worked really hard, I know, to give us um, the correct lens, the correct way in which we are to view these stories. And I think very often we see them as illustrations designed to give us a lesson in morality or perhaps a heavenly perspective wrapped up in an earthly tale. And while there's elements of truth in that, these stories are far more For Jesus, they were a way of him communicating his manifesto. They were a way of showing his followers what the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, looked like. And they were a mandate for how they might bring about the kingdom of heaven here on earth. Last week, Steve described them to us as stories of revolution. And as well as that, they were a way of drawing in people, those that wanted to go after Jesus, while simultaneously disenfranchising those whose hearts were closed to Jesus. And you might recall last week, um, we read from Matthew 13, where the disciples actually ask Jesus, why, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? And Jesus tells them, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. So we can see from the outset that these stories are anything but simple. They are multi-layered. There is a hidden depth there for those of us that would dare to go after it. And that's not to say that we should try and look for meaning in every single Uh, word that's written down for us, but that we view these stories with the right lens, the right perspective. And that lens, that perspective for us is Jesus' message of the kingdom of heaven. And we can see that in today's chapter also. Hopefully you've got Luke 10 up. And if you look down at verse 21, it says this, At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit, said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. And then in verse 23, it says he turns to his disciples privately and says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see, for, they, for I tell you that many prophets and kings wanted to see but did not see it and hear but did not hear it. 
So this morning I'm really keen that we have the right perspective, we have the right eyes to see and the right ears to hear. So let's just take a minute to pray before we dive into this story together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see in this story this morning that hidden message of the kingdom of God. Father, show us how we are to respond to this story, how we are to act and how we are to be changed in ourselves so that we might live for your kingdom in this time and place. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay. So our story begins in earnest in verse 25. And I'm going to read you the whole thing and then we'll, we'll have a look and, and see what we can figure out together. So this is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, "Um, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road when he saw the man. He passed on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he put the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So it's a very familiar story to us. I I doubt there are many of you that haven't heard that story before, or at least I'm sure you've heard of the Samaritans, the charitable group that get their name from this story. And I'm so grateful um, to Martin for bringing us that story from a fresh um, perspective this morning, that modern retelling, because I think it allows us to hear the story for the first time again, which is really important. And I think because it's such a familiar story to us, our our inclination is to assume that we know what's going on. Oh yeah, it's this one. We've heard it before. We know what's going on here. But of course, that's not always the case, is it? Let me tell you a quick story to illustrate my point. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I decided to be a little bit naughty. Um, and I only live about a 15-minute walk away from my children's school. And so out of respect for the neighbours and because it makes it difficult to cross the road, I try not to drive them there in the morning. However, on this particular day, it was raining, and um, I needed to be somewhere afterwards. So I sort of justified it to myself that it would be okay on this occasion to take them in the car. And because we'd gone in the car, we arrived a bit early. And because it was still raining, we thought, well, we'll sit in the car for a bit. We'll just wait. And um, 
my kids, being the restless souls that they are, started to play around and they discovered a hatch in the back seat that allows you to remove things from the boot. Uh, and the hatch was just big enough for them to fit through um, the hatch. And they decided to do just that, crawl into the boot. And I'm not going to lie, it was quite amusing at the time, and I, I did very little to discourage them. Um, in fact, I, I took some photos. <laughs> I'll, I'll show you now. There we are. <laughs> now, of course, while they were doing this, um, time had moved on and it was time to get into school and my boot was quite full and it was difficult for them to turn around and come back out <laughs> the same way. So I concluded the easiest thing would be to go and let them out of the boot. <laughs> of course, what I hadn't considered was how that would look to the other parents <laughs> who saw me drive up and then remove the children from the boot. I'm currently awaiting a call from Childline. <laughs> and I've kept the photos as evidence that that's the way they went in. <laughs> but the point is, the other parents misinterpreted what was going on because their perspective was limited. They didn't have the correct perspective on this story. And this morning, I don't want us to make the same mistake as we read this story. I want us to have the right perspective. I want to give you the extra detail that you need so that we understand this story properly. And the first thing we need to try and wrap our heads around is why Jesus told this particular story. What was the purpose of it? And I think it's very interesting that in verse 21, Jesus talks about these things being hidden from the wise and learned, and then a few verses later, we're introduced to an expert in the law, someone who could very much be described as wise and learned, and yet somehow had missed the point of Jesus' message. So, verse 25, it says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. And this wasn't um, a lawyer, as perhaps we'd imagine, or a barrister. Um, this was an expert in the law of Moses. You might even describe him um, as a theologian. He knew his Bible, or, or his holy book, the Torah, as they'd have called it, really, really well. And his job was to, to read it, to understand it, to provide an application of all the laws that he read there for other people. And um, as we know, Jesus was a renowned speaker and teacher or a rabbi, and he'd have had his own interpretation of this law. And so a popular pastime for Jewish scholars was to meet and debate these finer points of theology. TV was not as exciting back then. And um, it's a very normal scene. And sometimes we look at this and we trip over the word test. It says he stood up to test Jesus, and we assume that this man is trying to catch Jesus out or, or trap him in, in, in his words. But really, it's more likely this was just him trying to understand Jesus' theological position. And he launches in with this nice, easy question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? No messing around here. And now this is where having the correct perspective is really, really important. Because to our ears... We understand that question as, how can I live forever? We might even uh, reinterpret it in our own heads as, how do I get to heaven? Except that what we're doing there is we're imposing a Christian perspective on a Jewish scholar having a Jewish conversation with a Jewish rabbi about a Jewish perspective on eternity. 
And it's significant because the Jewish perspective on eternity is not as we would imagine it, life after death. In fact, Judaism itself hardly at all focuses on life after death. It's all about how to live here and now. That's the main thrust of their faith, their religion. And they do have a concept of an afterlife. In Hebrew, it's called Olam Haba, okay? which is fun to say. Do you want to have a try? Olam Haba? Maybe. Um, or the world to come is another way of understanding the world to come. And they believe that all of Israel, all Jewish people, have a share of it. They all have uh, an inheritance in Alam Haba, but not all of the shares are equal. And so for a Jewish person, life is about learning to live in such a way that your inheritance in Alam Haba would be great. And they do that by studying the Torah uh, and by performing good deeds. Now, here's where it gets a little confusing. Alam Haba is also used to describe the Messianic age. And so this is um, a period of global peace and prosperity that is brought about by the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, and it takes place on earth. And all the Jewish people, they look forward to this age starting. It's a time where God's will will be enacted here on earth, that all things will be made new, that God will do away with all of the bad stuff, all of the hatred and the fear and the terrorism and all the bad things that we see in the world, and that they will live together as one nation in God's kingdom, holy and dearly loved as his people, free from enslavement or captivity to other nations. And so when Jesus arrived on the scene and he started saying things like, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news, that's Mark 1.15 or Luke 17.21, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The Jewish people think of Alam Haba, the world to come, and when they see Jesus healing the sick and casting out demons and raising the dead, they see that the world to come is breaking in to the present age. They start to think, aha, here is a man, here is a Messiah who can establish God's kingdom, who can bring about the world to come. You might remember Jesus telling his disciples when they prayed to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so if we read that again with our Jewish hats on, or yarmulkes, somebody got it, thank you. Um, we see that what this guy is asking isn't, how do I get to heaven? He's asking, how do I have an inheritance in the world to come? In other words, how can he live his life now in such a way as to bring about the kingdom of God? How can I learn to mimic the behavior of the life to come in order that I might be prepared for Alam Haba? Okay, how are we doing? This is the first verse. We haven't even got to the story yet. <laughs> I will pick up the pace, don't worry. But you see how it's so important to have the correct perspective and the correct way to view these stories. And so Jesus answers him. He says, well, what's written in God's law? How do you read it? Or how do you interpret it? What do you think? You're an expert. This is your job. You've devoted your life to studying these scriptures. What do they say? And the man's response is good. I mean, it's really good. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. And it's brilliant. It's the same answer that Jesus himself gave on another occasion when he was asked, what's the greatest law? And he said, it's, it's these two and everything else hangs on these two laws. And he affirms, he says, you've answered correctly. 
10 points. Well done. Do this and you will live. This is the life of the kingdom. This is what it's all about. Loving God, loving others. And then the guy asks another question. And as he does so, he, he reveals his heart. The thing I think that he really wants to ask. We're told that he wants to justify himself. And so he says, well, you say that, but who exactly is my neighbor? Now, if it was me in this scenario, my follow-up question would have been along the lines of, okay, but how on earth do I love God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength? Because, you know, even when I'm praying, my mind tends to wander off a bit. You know, that seems a bit crazy. But this man apparently has got that down. (laughs) And I say apparently, quite deliberately. And he moves on to the neighbor. You know, interestingly, there's a verse in another book in the Bible, 1 John, um, that says, whoever claims to love God and yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they've seen, cannot love God who they haven't seen. And that's actually kind of the point here, because for a Jew in Jesus' day, loving your neighbor meant that actually you were allowed to hate your enemy. And so the object of the game was to figure out who is your neighbor, who you have to love, and who is your enemy who you are allowed to hate. I wonder if we ever feel like that coming into church on a Sunday morning. Who, am I, who have I got to love today? And who can I get away with not loving so much? I'm sure you don't, because we're all wonderful. And if you're a fan of Jesus' teaching, you might remember that he deals with this exact issue in his famous sermon on the mount. And he said, you have heard it said, love your, enemy and, uh, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Yeah, that's, that's what you think, isn't it? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you... Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Love your neighbor, love your enemies. That's what Jesus has said. Apparently this guy has missed that sermon, um, and he wants to know who he is allowed to hate. So Jesus tells him this story that we're looking at together. Once upon a time, he says, there's a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he's attacked by robbers, stripped of his clothes, beat and and they beat him and go away and leave him half dead now we assume that because the man is leaving jerusalem he's a jewish individual and jericho is technically north east of jerusalem um, but jerusalem is 2500 feet above sea level whereas jericho is 770 feet below so you would literally have to go down to jericho and it was a treacherous journey the road is known as the way of blood pretty grim Because robbers and bandits would hide out on the road and they would attack people that were on their journeys. It was known for this. Uh, Jesus' listeners would have known what sort of story this was going to be as he said that. It'd be a bit like me saying um, a man was walking down a back alleyway in the centre of Birmingham. or I don't know how bad Birmingham is these days, but that's the idea. They knew what was coming. And as expected, he's attacked and beaten and left... Uh, naked and half dead, bleeding out and in desperate need of help. And we're introduced to two characters in very, very quick succession, a priest and a Levite. And Jesus hardly tells us anything about these people at all. There's barely any details given, and that's significant. The priest's job was to be responsible for worship and sacrifices at the temple. The Levite's job was to help the priest in those duties and other things Uh, But all we really need to know about them is that they're people of social and religious importance. They were people that should have known 
what was expected of them by God. And then we're not told anything else other than they failed to stop. They passed by on the other side. Now, I'm sure um, we can use our imaginations and we can come up with all sorts of excuses for them, can't we? We can perhaps say, well, the man was a, a very visceral reminder of how dangerous the road was and they thought of their own safety. Or maybe they thought he was laid out there so that the robbers could spring an ambush on them and, and get them as well. Or maybe they had to get to the temple on time for, for the daily sacrifices or, or home to their families. Um, or maybe they, they thought the man was dead and, and they couldn't touch a dead body. It would make them ceremonially unclean, which would be no good for, for work. Or maybe they're on their lunch break. Or maybe they were just too full of their own self-importance. But you see, Jesus doesn't give us any of those details at all. He doesn't tell us anything because they're, they're really, they're just plot devices. And we need to be careful about reading too much into it because the point of the story is not these two men. The key, the point of the story is what did the one who stopped do? What was his response? And that's the Samaritan. Here ever after known as the good Samaritan. And when we say the word Samaritan, we tend to think of, don't we, someone who is good and helpful. Um, but to the, the Jewish audience of the day, to Jesus' audience, a Samaritan, whew, well, he was one of the ones you were allowed to hate. If it had been in the form of a pantomime, at this point there would have been boos and hisses made as Jesus said it. And essentially, it was a deep-seated historical hatred that the Jewish people had for these people, this nation. About 800 years earlier, the king of Israel had made a pact with Assyria, which had broken down, and Assyria had attacked Samaria, which was then the capital of Israel, laid siege to it and carted off the people as prisoners, but left behind the poorest and the weakest. And over time, as the, the city had laid in ruins, the Babylonians and other nations had moved in and intermarried with these people. And they had formed the Samaritans. And they had some differences in beliefs. The Samaritans only accepted the first uh, five books the, of, of Moses, and they had a different place of worship. Um, the Jews would say you would worship it in the temple in Jerusalem, but the Samaritans said, no, you, you must worship over on, on Mount Gezerim. Um, and over time, this hatred for each other as a group of people had grew. This was, to call someone a Samaritan now would be seen as a, an insult, as absolutely horrible. You can find examples of this through the Gospels. In John 8, Jesus accuses certain Jews of being children of the devil, and they respond by saying, well, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon-possessed? That's their way of getting back at him. And I'd like to give you a modern equivalent this morning, but I'd have to get Tim to bleep it out on the podcast and... I'm not sure he knows how, but this, there was no way that a Samaritan could be seen as a good guy in this story. But here he is, and he's most certainly that. He goes up, he bandages his wounds, he pours on oil and wine. It's like an old school antiseptic wipe. He gives his own supplies to help him. He puts the man on a donkey and brings him to an inn and takes care of him. He, that means he had to walk the rest of the journey with him, allowing him to ride on the donkey. And he stays with him. And then it says the next day he takes out two denarii and gives them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I'll reimburse you. He paid his cost and he organized for his care until he was fully healed. It's estimated two denarii would pay four 
about 24 nights at the inn. I checked with Tamworth Travel Lodge. 24 nights would set you back £1,680. This is extravagant generosity, extravagant care and extravagant love. And Jesus is really, really laying it on thick in this story. And then he asks the expert in the law, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? I mean, he couldn't have made it any clearer, could he? Perhaps if he said the priest and the Levite had given him a swift kick as they walked past, but I can't think of any other way he could have made it clearer. And the expert of the law, he says, the one who had mercy on him. Can't quite bring himself to say the Samaritan, you notice. The one who had mercy on him. And then that's it. Jesus just ends the conversation. He doesn't debate anymore. He doesn't speak anymore. He says four words. He says, go and do likewise. Go and do. So what's the point? What's the message? Remember, the secrets of the kingdom of heaven are hidden in this story. Well, I think the first thing we notice is that Jesus doesn't really answer the question, does he? The man says, who is my neighbor? And he wants to know who he's supposed to love, who should be the recipient of his love. And instead, Jesus asks him, well, who's the one who shows love in this story? In other words, do you know what love looks like? Do you know what love is? Can you point it out to me in this story? The expert says, you know, who should I love? And really what he's trying to do, he's, he's trying to reduce his obligation to the law. He's trying to say, how far should it stretch? How far should I extend my love and mercy? Who deserves it and who doesn't deserve it? To work out the boundaries of his faith. And Jesus responds by saying, do you know what love looks like? Because this is it, right here. You see, the story has far less to do with offering a definition of who our neighbor is and far more with showing us what love looks like. So Jesus' response to this man is, if you want to have an inheritance in the world to come, if you want to be a part of God's kingdom, a part of what I'm doing here on earth, then this is how you are to live. Like this Samaritan who you hate. This is cutting. <laughs> this is deeply challenging. This is like nothing ever heard before. Because you see the Jewish people of the day, they, they had um, all sorts of rules as to who they had to keep themselves separate from. All sorts of people that they considered to be unclean or no good. Those who were sick, those that were dying. Gentile people, it's the word in our Bible is used to describe those that are non-Jewish. You know, some rabbis of the day had a saying, is that, and it was that if you see a Gentile woman in distress at childbirth, you're not to help them, because if you succeed, all you've done is bring another Gentile into the world. This was the, the level of their separation from other people. Tax collectors, they hated because they were um, helping the occupying government, sinners, lepers, and especially Samaritans. And so Jesus uses one in this story to say, Here's a good example of love. Is that how you love? Is that what your love looks like? Perhaps not. And it's most certainly what Jesus' love looked like as he um, went about his ministry here on earth. At one occasion, he even travels to Samaria to meet a Samaritan woman 
and they weren't hot on women either at the time. And he went all that way to help her, to meet her. And you can read about it in John chapter 4. It's scandalous and it's brilliant. And this woman, she becomes a missionary for Jesus. Her life is changed for the better. And this is the kind of kingdom that Jesus is bringing about. One that knows no division, no separation. Love is not withheld from anyone who has need. A kingdom where the king tells his people, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a revolution like we've never seen before. And I could stand here this morning, I could try and think of all the modern equivalents, you know, for the Samaritan, but I don't think it's the point. I think the point is that we're supposed to see what love looks like. That love goes beyond political and religious divides. To Jesus, it doesn't matter what gender, what sex, what background you're from, what your history is, what you've done, what you're currently still doing, what shortcomings you have, have no impact on the amount of love that Jesus is willing to show. Whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I'm sure this morning, you know, as I'm speaking, God will challenge you in your own ways, perhaps about those divisions and things that you need to work on in your own lives. But I'm not going to give you the examples this morning because I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, do we love like the Samaritan did in this story? Are we moved to mercy by the needs of those around us? Matthew 9 Jesus is at it again. He's eating with Matthew, a despised tax collector, and many other tax collectors and sinners are with him and his disciples. And it says, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing it, Jesus said, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And Jesus isn't interested in religiosity He's interested in showing love to those who need it most. And so if we're asking ourselves still this morning, who is it I'm supposed to love, then really we're like that Jewish expert. We've missed the point. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven are still hidden from us. Maybe we need to become like children who love without prejudice. It's like that verse I mentioned from 1 John 4.20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister who they have seen, cannot love God, who they have not seen. I love the way Jesus finishes this conversation. I'm going to finish here this morning. This is where I want to end. Go and do likewise. You know, one of the best ways to get nothing done is to discuss it. Jesus says, go and do. He doesn't get drawn into a debate about which person or which group of people are deserving of love. He shows us what love is and he says, go and do it. And we might say, well, but, but you know, what about that, you know, that person? Jesus says, go and do likewise. But you can't mean them, Lord, surely, surely not them. Go and do it. But I couldn't possibly love. Go and do it. If you want to be a part of God's kingdom, you are to go and love the unlovable. Go and reach the unreachable. Jesus says he desires mercy, not sacrifice. Let's pray.